If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, as if he's an unbeliever. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. That's an important tense distinction. This is not us doing stuff and heaven sees us bind something and then heaven screws to, to bind it because me and Steve and the elder board decided something. Whatever we bind using the procedure in verses 15, 16, 17, based on that, shall have already been bound in heaven. We're just declaring heaven's position, God's position. We're not making God do something for us or changing his mind. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been bound in heaven. So give uh, the New American Standard Bible an A-plus on rendering that, pulling that out of the original Greek text. Verse 19, again I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. That's one of the most often quoted verses in the New Testament, ripped way out of context, and it doesn't mean what it might appear to mean if you don't notice the context. And then verse 20, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst. Interesting passage, um, important principles, and we'll look at that. But we need to pray that we will be teachable to God's word. And, you know, we're, we're wanting the Holy Spirit who inspired and has preserved this text to illuminate to us so we can understand it and embrace it as truth and conviction. That's the bottom line. The learning is for living. And uh, as is our custom, and I think it's important as we pray for teachability, let's pray that uh, our Lord will protect and guide uh, our active military, peace officers, firefighters, international, national, and local. Okay? So, uh, thank you. Yeah, this passage uh, is Jesus talking about the awkward but necessary topic of church discipline. And if you follow the procedure he gives you, you're going to minimize the fanfare and minimize the rumors. Because sometimes once the rumors get started, uh, what is spread is exaggerated or distorted. Speaking of rumors, top three rumors about Ron Miller that are actually true. Ron's computer keyboard does not have a backspace key or a delete key, but only because Ron Miller never makes mistakes. Did I read that the way you wrote that? Number two. Ron has counted to infinity three different times. Nobody, Michael, has ever done that but him. And finally, hold your applause. As a boy, Ron never wore Superman pajamas And yet today, Superman always wears Ron Miller pajamas. (laughs) He doesn't like to brag about that, but that is actually true. True story. Probably 20 years ago, Debbie and I, my first wife Debbie and I, and three other Christians from three other churches attended a meeting on an off night. It wasn't a Wednesday night. Set up by a good friend of mine who was a very prominent pastor in Duncan at that time. Now, my friend apparently was expecting 50 or 100 people to show up, and there were only six of us counting him, okay? 
And after he opened with prayer, he stared at us with a very disappointed look in his eyes. And he said, well, you know, Jesus said, where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Like, uh, you know, oh, I've got chopped liver today, but we're going to do the best we can. Now, he had some grandiose, he was a great guy, but he had grandiose plans for him to operate a, a inner church thing that all the churches were already doing themselves much better than he could do it if he organized it. But he always had big ideas like that. And sometimes his friends like me tried to talk him off the ledge. But anyway, at the end of that meeting, I'm not making this up. Debbie will tell you this. He closes in prayer and then he says, hey, before you guys leave, the other five of, five of us that are there with him, he said, uh, Joey, how many people are you going to think of the, be at the next meeting next month about this? And the guy goes, well, I don't know, seven, like one more. And he said, okay, Jimmy, what do you think? And he goes, she goes, I don't know, eight. And then he says, Debbie, my wife, what do you think? And she's nice. She said, I don't know, maybe ten. And he said, Brad, how many? I said, probably less than five, Jack, because I'm not coming back. (laughs) So uh, those things happen. My point is, this verse, verse 20, and also verse 19, which sounds like this incredible blank check prayer uh, promise. It's not talking about that. It's talking about something completely different. So my questions would be, uh, where in the Bible did Jesus say where two or three are gathered in my name? And use the visual aid if you need it. It's in Matthew 18, verse 20, right? Question two, was the Lord giving encouragement when you operate church functions and only a handful of people show up for a meeting? That's not what he's talking about there at all. And question three, how can we figure out what the Lord did mean in this verse, David? What are we going to do? We're going to have to read verses 15 through 20 and understand what he's talking about there. Now, we've just read that, so hopefully you notice that he's talking about church discipline. And what we've got here, Ethan, is a procedure and then some promises. He gives us a three-step procedure when necessary to follow when church discipline needs to be considered about a situation. And then he gives us, because this is not comfortable or fun, he gives us promises to keep in mind when we're in the process of following this procedure. Now let's start here. All born-again Christians, including Billy Graham when he was alive, he's not sinning anymore in heaven, but all Christians as James, not James Mitchell, although he said this too, uh, James, uh, New Testament James, chapter 3, verse 2, all New Testament Christians stumble in many ways. Can I hear an amen on that? First uh, John 1 says, if you say you're a Christian now so you can't sin anymore, you're kidding yourself. And if you say you're a Christian and you could sin but you just don't sin anymore, you're kidding yourself. You're making God a liar. Okay, We all stumble in many ways. So most of the time, when Christians do minor, innocuous things, that are just plain wrong, or they do them in the wrong way at the wrong time, such that they bug other Christians. Let's not use the word bug. Let's use a theological term. They do minor things that are wrong or do them the wrong way that offend or affect other believers. I think most of us realize we're supposed to forgive that kind of thing, you know? In the very next passage after 15 through 20 here, verse 21, Peter says, Hey, if somebody offends me personally, just superficially, socially, how many times should I forgive them? Seven times, Jesus? Because he knew the Pharisees said you had to forgive three times in such situations. So he's more than doubling it. He thinks Jesus is going to pat him on the head. And what does Jesus say? Not seven. Seventy times seven. And that's cool. 
Because 70 times 7 is 490. So on the 491st time, buddy, you're in trouble. I'm going to let you have it. Now, what he means is don't keep track and don't make a big deal about every little thing. And I talk about the baptism technique, how you're going to get along with other Christians, Ashley. You're going to have to hold your nose and lean way over backward because they're not all as perfect as you and me are, you know, that kind of thing. So, before we talk about church discipline, let's just state for the record, there's no need for formal church discipline if Euodia has a personality conflict with Syntyche. There's no need for personal church or formal church discipline if Syntyche is bummed out at Euodia for not showing up for her cocktail party. Cocktail party. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Freudian slip. Freudian slip. And I've never drank alcohol in my life, so it's not a secret sin, I don't think. I meant Tupperware party, okay? Hey, David, David, start the recording over. Open the word of God, please, to Matt. No. Um, where'd that come from? Now, I thought this was such a good example. Uh, hey, you know what? My back spasm just went away. <laughs> I think the fight or flight mechanism finally kicked in. Uh, there's no need for formal church discipline. Uh, if Syntyche is bummed out at Euodia for not showing up at her Tupperware party, okay? And we're going to get back to them in a minute at the end of the message because they're mentioned in Philippians 4 and they're not getting along and Paul doesn't say one or both of them need to be hauled in front of the church for church discipline. So this is a different kind of thing. I believe that this passage, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, is talking about how believers should respond when we see firsthand, black and white, no doubt about it, another professing believer involved in serious sin. Let me give you some examples. I'm going to have two juicy ones and one that's more likely to happen, although any of these can happen. You're in Dallas-Fort Worth for a business trip, and you're working with a small team of people in the office all day, and they're not from Duncan, and you're doing your thing, and after you work from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., you're done for the day, and your little group gets in the Halliburton and goes to Chili's. And as you're pulling into Chili's, you like look out, looking for a parking place. You look out the window, and you see a Duncanite who's always very prominent at the mayor's prayer breakfast every year. And is a well-known kind of local personality, been in Duncan for a long time. And he's 50 years old, and he's got a 50-year-old wife. Well, this guy's walking out of Chili's. He didn't see you. You're in a darkened van. He didn't know you're watching him. He's walking out with two 25-year-old girls wrapped around him, and they don't look like kissing cousins, even though they're kind of kissing with each other. Okay? That's private sin. That's serious sin. Uh, what do you do with that? We'll talk about it. A little less juicy. you got to start with the juicy one to get everybody in the game. You're an accountant. You've been at uh, a new company, a new job for six months, and during your lunch break, you go into the lunchroom, and there's usually several people in there, but for some reason, there's nobody in that lunchroom that day. But as you sit down, you notice with your brown bag, you notice there's a bunch of paperwork on the table, and you know it looks kind of official, so you're going to grab it up so you can take it to the appropriate person. And without meaning to pry, you notice this is a company credit card statement, and it's obvious that the person who used this card, who happens to be a prominent Christian businesswoman, I mean, she leads the Bible study for employees every Thursday morning at the at the office there. Uh, she's been using that company card 
to buy really expensive personal items. That's a problem. That's probably a felony. But beyond that, what do you do as a believer? You, you've seen it, black and white. You weren't looking for it, but you got, what do you do with it? Uh, a little less juicy, but this is what I'm going to use as kind of my baseline. It's Monday morning, and uh, you haven't have a friend in the church that you attend, uh, who had told you uh, several weeks ago he was going to be on a staycation that that week? It's Monday morning. He was going to be on a staycation. He was going to stay in town and take some take care of some things in town. So it's Monday morning, and uh, you call him up. He could be an elder, could be a deacon, but let's just say he's somebody on the worship team or a Sunday school teacher, prominent in your local church. And uh, you have a ministry opportunity that next day. Maybe it spokes for hope. It's the summer. Maybe it's uh, Maxine once needs people to move her furniture around in her apartment, and so you can't do it yourself. So you're calling this guy because he talked up, talked about staycation. He was going to be bored this week. So you call him on a Monday and say, hey, you know, tomorrow's Bucks for Hope is going to be low. We need somebody to help. Or Maxine needs us to come, me and somebody else to go over and move some furniture for a few minutes. Could you help me? And this guy, who maybe he's an elder, maybe he's a deacon, maybe he teaches Sunday school, he says, you know, I'd love to do that. Nothing would give me more joy than to help with that. But I've injured my foot, and I just got back from the doctor, and he said, I've got this exotic um, infection, and the only treatment is to stay in bed for a week. So I'm going to spend my staycation in bed the rest of this week, uh, all the way through Sunday. Now, Sunday night, I'll, I'll probably be better, but uh, don't expect to see me at church either, and I can't help you, but I'd love to help, but I can't. Well, you go, okay, I've got to find somebody else. But meanwhile, you do your thing on Monday, and then about 4.30, you go to the Simmons Center, and uh, you usually do the elliptical, but you decide to walk the track that day, and as you know, you get to see the basketball courts. And as you're walking the track there, you see your guy playing full-court basketball with a bunch of 18-year-old kids, and it's obvious he doesn't have a foot problem. But you got a problem. What are you going to do? Okay, That's just straight, black-and-white lie. And what do you do? Well, what a lot of people do is get on social media and say, you're not going to believe what I saw, or I got an unspoken request, and somebody's in really bad spiritual shape in my church. And he's a leader in the church. And he talks about cocktail parties from the pu- from the pulpit. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you do with those kind of situations? Well, you do what Jesus said to do in Matthew 18, 15 through 20. That's what you do. And you got a procedure for dealing with serious, secret, private sin. You're the only one who knows just by the nature of the case. This is not in the newspaper. This is not a felony conviction that's all over Channel 7 News. This is private, secret sin, not secret to God, but you're the only one that knows. What do you do? Well, Jesus gives us a process. Let's look at it. Step one, three-step process, verses 15 through 17. Step one is private reproof. If your brother sins... You've seen it firsthand. This is not secondhand gossip. Uh, it's not public knowledge. It's not part of the police report. Uh, you go and show him his fault in private. You're the only one who knows. Now he's the only. Now he knows you're the only one who knows. He knows, but you're the only one who knows, and you tell him about it. And what does Jesus say? If he listens to you, you've won your brother. Uh, if he listens, says, you know what? I've got a weakness, and you know, since I became a Christian, I really almost never do this anymore, but sometimes when I'm asked to do something I don't really want to do, rather than just saying I don't want to do it, I lie about it. And that was a whopper. 
And you know what? I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. There's no excuse. I felt badly about it, but I was going to try to ignore it. Uh, but uh, I didn't realize you saw me playing basketball. That'd be stupid in Duncan to do something like that. I'm just telling you. And if you're going to if you're going to do something bad, do better protection, self protection. And I mean, you're dumb. But and the guy says, okay. And he, in First John one nine, in that passage, it says, don't say you can't sin and you don't sin as a Christian. It says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. As far as our fellowship is concerned, that's what you're concerned about. This guy's fellowship. Uh, if the, if he responds that way, you've won your brother. Now that's what Jesus says to do at that level. Even the guy walking out with the two 25-year-olds, okay? He may have sincere repentance. Now, I think it'd be a good idea to do some follow-up. I think you'd, I'd tell him that. But here's what you don't do. You don't call five of your friends and say, I have a prayer concern. Someone in the church has lied seriously about ministry. And uh, you know what? I'm going to follow Matthew 18, and I'm going to fix him. Is he applying? Is that person applying Matthew 18? What does Jesus say? Somebody sins and it's private. Nobody knows about it but you. It's black and white. Don't call your friends. Go show him the fault. And if he responds in repentance and wants to rehab his fellowship, you've won your brother. And you stop right there. You know, this is a process that protects the privacy and the dignity of the individual, especially if they're responsive initially. And sometimes they are. You know, the idea is rather than you know, if you had a fire in your kitchen, would you get tongs and throw pieces of fiery grease all over your kitchen and then be surprised when the house burns down? What are you going to do? You're going to smother it if you can, right? That's the same thing with these kind of things. For some reason, some Christians just love to let everybody know they know some juicy bit of sin in somebody's life and they're going to fix it. But that's not fixing it according to what Jesus says to do. You keep it in the smallest possible circles for as long as possible. No fanfare, no personal promotion. Some of my best work has been done deep underground like this, man. And you can't brag about it. But nobody knows except God, the offender, and you. And sometimes uh, you think that they probably will appreciate that, but sometimes they don't. The long term is crazy. Um, and the intent is not to be a hero, not to harm the person, but to heal them. Tough love, for sure. But hey, if he'll lie about his foot to you, he may lie about something more important to his wife at some point. So, you know, you you got a responsibility to him. You're not trying to score points against him. You're trying to win him over. You're not uh, trying to uh, glorify yourself, but to uh, catalyze restoration in his heart. So best case scenario, if he listens, he admits he's wrong, confesses, tells you it's terrible, he's going to isolate it. Um, I think you stop and you say, hey... That, that's awesome. You know what? And nobody needs to know about this this time, but you know, I'm going to check up with you. I'm going to be your personal kind of support group here for the next couple of months just to reestablish you're not going to start doing this again and uh, that you learned your lesson here, right? I think you, you owe that to him, right? Now, here's another possibility, Tommy. I often say you will never have enough information to legitimately second-guess God, and quite often you don't have enough information to second guess anybody. Let's say this is what happens. And aren't you glad you didn't get on social media or call five of your friends to talk about this when this happens, okay? You see him playing basketball, okay? The next day you call him up to do step one. You say, hey man, you know what? We went ahead and moved Maxine's furniture, but I was really disappointed and shocked that you would lie to me. What do you mean lie? Oh, well, you know what? 
I meant to call you. You know what happened? Right after I talked to you and said I couldn't do it, the doctor's nurse called and said, guess what? There's actually a new pill for this exact kind of infection. And rather than having a week off or bed rest, if your wife will come and fill the prescription, don't get out of bed yet. If you take it, it will solve the infection in three hours. Is that possible? Hey, it's my hypothetical. I'm telling you it's possible. <laughs> so rather than being judged during execution or calling the pastor and getting the elder board to go kind of beat the guy up, you pursue it in private. Now, he might be, hey, he may be lying to you about that. <laughs> but let's assume he's telling the truth here. So you're keeping in the smallest possible circles and actually trusting that maybe, just maybe, God might be at work in the midst of this thing, which is what the promises are about in a bit. But let's say, worst case scenario, he doesn't listen to you. In fact, he's offended and he's mad. How dare you? You know, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. That's a misapplication of that one. Uh, judge not lest you be judged. That's a misapplication of that one. But he's bummed out. What do you do? What are you going to do? Look at the next verse. We go from private reproof to plural reproof. But if he does not listen to you, he doesn't respond repentantly, want to get back on the wagon where he fell off, take one or two more believers with you, uh, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 19.15. You take one or two more with you, for sure, make sure they're consistent as far as you can tell in their Christian lifestyle. And two, they've got to be able to keep confidences. And some people don't do that very well. And after that, you just can't use them in this kind of interaction because they're going to blab it all over town without meaning to. That's just what they, they do. It's one of their weaknesses. That's not good either. Um, I think the extra people there are to emphasize the gravity of this situation and also uh, if the guy responds negatively, when you take it to the final step, it's not just me saying he responded negatively. It's me and the other guy or the second, third guy that's come with me to try to catalyze uh, confession, restoration kind of thing. So what happens if, in fact, uh, you see this thing happen and you get Steve and Dustin to go with you to confront the guy? And he goes, you know what? When you talked to me yesterday, I was just a jerk. And you're exactly right. And, uh, you know, I'm embarrassed and I'm, I'm ashamed. But more importantly, I want to get back in fellowship. And I'm, let's pray for, I'll confess it. I'm going to isolate it. I hope you guys will keep me accountable for the foreseeable future, that kind of thing. If that happens, nobody needs to know. Now, if the, the offender wants to brag about you at prayer meeting, that's fine. He can, he's got that right. But you don't say anything about it. You rejoice that he got with the program and everything's beautiful. And that does happen sometimes. I've seen that happen. Uh, but again, if he's uh, refusing, maybe will cuss you guys out or threaten bodily harm. I had a guy threaten to hurt, do bad things to me in my office many years ago when something like this happened. And uh, I guess it's just an occupational hazard. Now, the reason I've got back spasms is because anymore I come with a full bulletproof vest when I come to church just for that reason. No, not really. But it's, it's dangerous to do this sometimes over a long period of time. So let's go to step three. He refuses the plural reproof. What are you going to do? Go to step three. So private reproof first, just you and the guy, or you and, uh, you and the, the girl. I would say same sex. You know, if the women's, woman sees it, you probably should have a woman go. Uh, plural reproof, two or three on one, and now public reproof. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, 
the folks involved in step two, tell it to the church, tell it to the ecclesia. Uh, church in the New Testament never refers to buildings, always talks about believers. It's, it's always people, not pulpits and kind of thing, right? You guys know that. The church in Philippi is talking about the believers in Philippi. Uh, and you know what? Take it to the church. If the pastor's not been involved at this point, I think you need to generically say, hey, we got a situation that we need to apply Matthew 18, and I think he needs to be filled in a, a, enough to know what's going on. And I think you would let the offender know that this is going to be brought up in front of the congregation probably after, uh, uh, rather than a break today between first and second hour, we've got to deal with some important business. You let him know. Now, in reality, in modern America, there's a 99.9% chance he's not going to show up for this. But ideally, you're trying to get this out in the open so it can be dealt with. Um, and uh, optimistically, what does Jesus say? Well, you know, uh says if he doesn't listen, you treat him as if he's an unbeliever, at least functionally. But I think the implication is based on the context here. You know, if he listens in that public forum, um, you know, then you, re- you get to restore him. Uh, and, you know, there's always a chance he's lying about being repentant in front of the group if he shows up for that. But worst case scenario, he doesn't respond or he doesn't show up at all. He doesn't take responsibility for the mess he's in. Uh, he's probably going to get on social media and say bad things about the pastor and the church and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure they told me this at seminary, but I think I figured it out. You know, when you have people charging, mad about stuff, um, when somebody, when anybody comes to me and says somebody doesn't like X, I always say, who's somebody? You gotta factor that in. You know, are they credible or do they have an axe to grind kind of thing? You know, I've heard, you know, disgruntled employees quite often will go back to where they got fired and unfortunately do bad things, you know. That's why when you, when, when you let people go at big companies, they actually escort them out. You have 30 minutes to clean at your desk and escort them out because they don't want you to do any damage. Some people will do that. So you got, you know, it's not a pretty picture, but the, for sure, this guy, is guilty of black and white moral sin, is totally unrepentant about it, and no shame whatsoever, no repentance, no contrition. You can't allow this guy to represent the church at any level, and you can't allow him to formally influence the church at any level. So, you know, if he's an elder or deacon, they've got to step down from that. If they they can't be part of the worship team, you're representing the church there, they shouldn't even be allowed to take the Lord's Supper. Now, we'll talk about this uh, if he says no at that stage, treat him as a Gentile tax collector. Um, I'm not certain that means you've got to automatically assume he cannot be regenerate at any level. Like it's a regenerate person can say no to step one, no to step two, but will always respond to step three. Uh, but there's a real chance he may not have ever been really a believer. So you treat him functionally, God knows theologically, as if he's an unbeliever, which means he can't represent the church, he can't lead the church, he can't influence the church. In my opinion, now watch this, this is kind of generic descriptions. I think the genius of this is Jesus is allowing the specific case and the wisdom of the leadership of the church to decide exactly what this looks like in reality if they get to step three, what that involves. If I've got a vote on it, I'm going to say, depending on the guy, if he's threatening to kill us all, then I don't think it would be a good idea to let him come to church. But do we let unbelievers attend church here? Do we, we don't let them in unless, are you a born-again Christian? Are you a John 3.16 Christian? If you're not, you can't come into this church, Sunday church service at all. We don't say that, do we? So even if you're seeing him, 
as definitely unregenerate, and I'm not sure you can absolutely say that. I don't think this necessarily means that. How can that not mean that? Look at 1 Timothy 5. Let's see what Paul says about a different kind of thing, but a serious problem. We actually alluded to this Wednesday night. And yeah, 1 Timothy 5, 8. Talk about the importance of providing for your family. 1 Timothy 5, 8 says, If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially those of his household, because they're sitting around waiting for the rapture or any other reason, even if they have a theological reason not to go to work every day, that person has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever pragmatically, practically. He's not saying they cannot have been regenerate. Is it possible a Christian be lazy? There are some lazy Christians. There are some Christians that like to kind of sit in on the dock and watch everybody else. I always like to think of the church as a long boat with a seat for everybody and a set of rows, oars for everybody. And some people just sit at their seat and never pull on the oars and criticize other people's rowing technique. And other people stand on the dock. They won't even get in the boat half the time and criticize other people's rowing technique. That doesn't necessarily mean they're unregenerate, but it's hard to tell, right? So go back to Matthew 18. Uh, treat them as if they're not believers, but we allow unbelievers to come to church. We want them to be under the gospel. We want them, I mean, Bob Shallot came to church here for a decade before he came to faith. And I think him being here over a long period of time was important in his conversion. So the specifics of how it's going to play out have to be hammered out by the church leadership on the ground. But for sure, these folks cannot be allowed to represent or to officially influence the church. Um, that's for sure. Now, that's the procedure. Now, because this is not an easy, fun thing to be involved in, I think we need special encouragement to do it at all. And so I think it's genius that Jesus gives us three promises. After a three-step procedure, three promises to keep in mind as you're working through this process, okay? Um, look at verse 18. First, Jesus assures us of heavenly results throughout the procedure, even in the worst-case scenario. What's the worst-case scenario? You go through step three and he either doesn't show up at all and just refuses to deal with it, or uh, just, uh, you know, uh, y'all go to you-know-where and this whole church is uh, satanically possessed because you don't love other Christians like me, that kind of thing. They, people say stuff like that sometimes. Um, Jesus says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind... You as a church body that's gotten to step three, uh, as hammered out specifically by the leadership of the church, has already been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth has already been loosed in heaven. Uh, I'm not saying heaven's reacting to our decisions, but we're representing and um, reflecting heaven's, God's mind on that kind of thing based on this procedure the Lord gave us. To loose here means to forgive, to restore, to authorize, to permit, uh, Best case scenario, the guy responds repentantly. You keep in a small circle. He stays on the worship team. Nobody but you knows. He's processed it biblically. You kind of follow up, make sure he stays on the straight and narrow. But it's all good. Uh, to bind means to limit, to tie up, to disapprove, to forbid. Treat him as an unbeliever. Don't let him uh, formally represent or influence the church. So that's assurance of heavenly results. Verse 19, assurance of heavenly response, especially in the best case scenario. What's the best case scenario? You see this guy, he's lying about 
um, his foot injury. The doctor didn't call the pill. He just lied about it. Uh, but you talk to him about it. He says, you're right. I, I shouldn't have done that. It's horrible. That was kind of my pattern before I became a Christian. I really have isolated that. I haven't done that in a long time. But yeah, I blew it. And I want you to forgive me personally and let's pray that I can confess my sin to God and get back into fellowship. When that happens, notice, Jesus says again, here's the second promise. I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything they may ask in this process, it shall be done for them. Now, where's the only, where, you get three steps. Where's the only step where you've got only two people involved? Step one, where it's me, and the guy I saw playing basketball. And you've agreed that what he did was inexcusable, unacceptable. He admits it. He confesses it. He commits to get back on the wagon. You know what? It may, you know, you're asking him to be renewed to fellowship and continue serving the worship team or whatever. And God checks off on that. That's what God, that's what God's heart is. That's what you're wanting. Verse 20. But again, you know, people look at verse 19 like it's a blanket uh, blank check kind of promise about prayer. You know, if you get, if you can just get, if you can pray for somebody to be healed, then it won't happen. But if me and Steve pray about it, then God's got to do it because that's an absolute promise of prayer answers. There's a lot of wonderful promises about prayer answers, but this isn't one of them. This isn't saying that if you got two more, one more person than just you praying about something, God's got to give you whatever you're asking. This doesn't work like that. Verse 20, and this is where we started with my friend I think I blurred his first name. Forgive me. Now you have to listen to the recording. Maybe you didn't know it's the first name, but uh, I'm not making that story up. And I would tell him to his face because he would laugh about it now. But he didn't like it then. He didn't want six people. He wanted 600. (laughs) And we all do, right? Verse 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name. Hey, that's step two. That's you... One or the other one that you're bringing with you that can keep conferences that are stable Christians. And you've gathered in, in the Lord's name even though the guy doesn't respond necessarily. Okay, You're there doing the right things for the right reasons. Trying to limit the damage and help heal him. Well, two or three are gathered in my name. I'm there in the midst regardless of whether the guy responds or not. Um, the two or three obedient people in step three. You take one or two more with you. That's you plus one or two more. That's two or three. Uh, if you're stonewalled by the offender and he cusses at you or says, how dare you, or threatens harm to you, and then gossips about the church and how unloving it is, uh, be assured, I'm right there with you. You're still doing the right thing, even if you get some bad publicity. So, look at this. This is, this is tough stuff and it's tough love, but it's, it's, it's really genius because this process respects the offender's dignity seeks to restore him or her to spiritual vitality, uh, is fair without seeking fanfare, if I could say it that way. So you're respecting the offender's dignity without rationalizing serious sin. This is black and white serious sin we're dealing with, not she didn't come to your Tupperware party or your cocktail party. Uh, and it promotes purity in the sin in the church because it avoids two things that Christians often like to do. And sometimes this is worse sin than some of the, the minor thing you're whining about. Uh, sometimes we see serious sin and just spread it to everybody else. We talk to everybody else about it but the person who we ought to be talking to. Or we see the serious sin and we ignore it. And say, I don't want to deal with this. 
Those, that's, that's punning when you ought to be trying to get a first down kind of thing, you might say. Now let's go back to Euodia, Syntyche, and the Tupperware party. Sorry about that. Uh, turn to Philippians 4, or you can just use the slide. Either way is good. Yeah, so 20 years ago, Debbie and I, uh, with uh, a total of six people, including the pastor who was trying to organize another parachurch thing in town that none of us felt like needed to be organized at all. <laughs> but he had a, he, his heart in the right place. He read verse 20 to us when he looked around and there's only five of us plus him, you know. Well, you know, Jesus said, it's all good because uh, where two or three have gathered, and we've got double that, we've got six, Jesus right in the midst of this meeting about something we don't really need to do. Uh, he's not talking about that at all. Uh, now, do we really need a promise like that? If, we, if you're going to have, you know what? Uh, it's been interesting. The last couple of Wednesday nights, I've thought we've had extraordinarily good prayer meetings. And trust me, even though I do have, I'm forced to great speeches at Cameron, I never sit here in great people's prayers or anything. Occasionally I'll say, hey, good job on something, but not, not like you have to please me. But I, I felt like we've had extraordinarily powerful prayer meetings the last uh, month or so. I had good turnout, good spirit, some good sharing, some wonderful answers, and everybody seems interested in Scripture. So, you know, that's cool. That's great. That's wonderful. But, um, you know, I think one of the things TBF has always done is uh, most of us try to catch each other doing the right thing as opposed to the church lady coming, looking around for something to be mad at all the time. And if that's your mindset, you're not going to stay around here very much, very long. And it doesn't necessarily mean... That's the reason people come and go and this and that. But uh, I think generally we're kind of an upbeat, positive kind of approach to things. But do we really need a, another Bible verse to tell us if, if only two people show up for a prayer meeting some night and you're expecting 10 or 50? Do you need a promise that God's in, Jesus is happy with that? I mean, anytime you're praying in Jesus' name, trying to glorify him, he's in the midst of that. I, I think just as a general rule based on general principles. Uh, new commentary... I got recently, Cornerstone Bible Commentary, Daryl Bach, probably the best-known evangelical uh, gospel expert in those circles. He says this about verse 20, about the way it tends to be misused, and saying, don't worry if only two or three show up for a meeting. Jesus is going to be there with you anyway. He says this, the flippant way in which verse 20 is often cited to assure small meetings of Christians that God is with them is disturbing because it twists a solemn passage, a promise in the midst of church discipline that nobody wants to be involved in, it twists a solemn passage into a cliche. No doubt God is present with any legitimate meeting of his people. I mean, I don't think there's anything in the Bible that would make you doubt that. Whatever its size. But there's no need to mishandle scripture to prove it, like in this verse. Taking this solemn passage out of context cheapens it and profanes the sacred duty of the church to maintain the harmony, I'd say the purity, of its interpersonal relationships. So, most of the time when believers are less than perfect around us, you know, formal church discipline is not called for and not necessary. Yet, even then, I think we need to realize, even in the midst of full-fledged church discipline, we need to realize that ultimately each one of us 
needs to be our number one spiritual science project. It's a lot easier for me to kind of try to get the speck out of somebody. Some famous, really smart guy said, "Don't be worried about getting the speck out of your brother's eye when you got a telephone pole coming out of yours. You probably ought to deal with your own issues." But it's a lot more fun for me to deal with. You know, Sydney's issues as I see them, if I see them at all, as opposed to dealing with mine. So you keep that in mind. You, you, you come with humility, trying to help, almost reluctantly in this situation, as opposed to, hey, I'm going to show them who's boss here. That kind of thing. You can do the right thing the wrong way. So instead of being obsessed with the weaknesses and quirks of others, just kind of bend over backward and get along. But when discord between believers is a matter of personality conflicts over non-essential issues. Color of the carpet is the analogy I've always used, even though I don't think we've ever had a controversy over the color of the carpet here. Now, I do remember, you know, for years we had dots, and the guy that sets the chairs up loved the dots because he always got them lined up with the dots. And when David and I were ripping up the carpet in here, and we got the last bit of carpet up with the dots, he said, looked at me and said, that's the last time you're ever going to get the chairs lined up straight. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, it won't be that hard. This is actually optical illusion. You look at it from one angle, it looks square. Every angle, it's just crazy, you know. Um, drives me nuts. But uh, drove me to an early retirement. No, that's not the reason. But boy, I'm going to be a really good church janitor in my retirement if I can find some place where I can just move chairs around. It's going to be great. But uh, yeah, notice what Paul tells Euodia and Syntyche. And it's interesting, you know. I'm just, I'm almost done. So if you're, if you're done listening, we're, we're right on, on track because I'm going to be done in just a couple minutes, honest. Um, Euodia in Greek means successful and syntyche means lucky. So I urge successful and lucky, these are proper names for ladies, to live in harmony with the Lord. Why is he telling them that? Because they're not it's a Tupperware party thing, or they don't like the colored carpet, or they don't like something about each other. But it's not a major church. He doesn't say, well, conduct church discipline on one or both of them. He doesn't say that. I was Yodian sent to key to live in harmony with the Lord. And true, in fact, true companion, that's uh, Veritas Suzuki, which is probably the pastor's name, Suzuki, but you can just translate it, true companion, uh, whoever's reading this initially to the Philippian church. I ask you also to help these women who've shared my struggle with the cause of the gospel. Because obviously one or both of them aren't really saved, right? You mean real Christians can have personality conflicts? You're not going to be the best of friends with every other Christian in the world? No, we ought to be friendly and show a copy to everybody, but not everybody's going to be your best friend. How do I know that? Uh, because these folks have their names in the book of life. These folks are all believers. They're not getting along. So this is not something that calls for church discipline, nor is it a reason to fold up your church because a couple of people won't get along at all. So let me close this way. When church discipline is needed, believers need to follow the procedure Jesus gave us and keep the promises in mind because it's not fun. But remember, Christ and his capital C church and his local churches are too important for any of us to make a big deal about every little thing. Amen. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, help us to embrace the heart of this passage, not so we can just be anxiously waiting to catch somebody doing something really stinky so we can be involved in this process. But help us to realize that if major black and white serious sin happens, we got to protect the purity of the church and the uh, spiritual status of the offender. 
Uh, and rather than getting on social media and kind of in general terms talking about what a great night we are to ride into this situation, we need to keep it with you and that person. And uh, I read this passage as desperately wanting to see restoration of fellowship. I think of every major character of the Bible, there's something major they did wrong, including all of the sons of Jacob, uh, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, David, Solomon, Peter, James and John, for that matter. And so help us to embrace the spirit of this. And as always, make us very clear that we got to be our number one spiritual science project. Rather than constantly um, majoring and criticizing everybody else around us, help us to be more sensitive and alert to our issues, our areas of weakness, uh, that you might strengthen and reinforce those to your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.